Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm K.W. Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. Carrie, why don't you tell us about the recent Shakespeare in the Park you saw? Okay, yes. So I went to go see Shakespeare in the Parks. I live in Pittsburgh, and the company is called Pittsburgh Shakespeare in the Parks. This is their 15th anniversary season. So they've been doing it for a while. I try to go every year if I can. This year, they did Julius Caesar, which I remember reading in high school. I was in 10th grade, and it was, oh, it was like pulling teeth to get 10th graders to read Julius Caesar. No one was into it. I was not even into it, and I was super into English. So when I heard they were doing Julius Caesar, I wasn't very excited, but then I heard they were doing it with an all-female cast. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, and I was like, I have to go see that. And I did, and it was great, and I want to tell you a little bit about, I mean, everyone knows the story, so I don't really have to go over that, but I did just want to talk a little bit about the all-female cast, and... Did they change it to, did they change it to Julia Caesar? No. No, every, everything was kept the same, all of the pronouns were kept the same, they kept referring to themselves as men, and they had, their wives were women, so it was, it was really interesting, and as I was watching it, I was like, hey, this is really interesting because in Shakespeare's time, all the actors were men, even the female characters. Because I think, at least when I hear of something like this, I'm always like, oh, that's really, that's super cool. I want to go see it with all women. But I also know in the back of my mind, there are people out there thinking that it's just a PC decision. But while I was watching it, I was like, hey, this is really This is a twist on what would have been seen in Shakespeare's time. Yeah. I always get there, like, right before it starts because I'm just perpetually late. So I didn't didn't get to read the, the program until afterwards. But the director, her name is Elena Alexandrados, I believe is how you pronounce it. She has some notes in the program, and she says in recent interviews, she's been asked two different questions. Why Julius Caesar and why only women? And the Julius Caesar question was really handled well in the the prologue because they had a man named Alan Irvin, who's a storyteller, and he's he, I think he's been in some of the plays before, but he came out before the show actually started to give a little overview of the plot, and he told it in a really great style, and it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, we were laughing. But he talked a lot about current events and the quest for power and things like that. So it ended up being a really timely show. But the second question, why only women, Elena's answer is basically what I was what I was thinking while I was watching it. So she says, almost 500 years ago, women were not permitted on stage. Shakespeare's women were portrayed by young boys and the comedic women by older men. In the present day, I want to show the actors the generic term that are female can play all the aspects of the human condition, that we are courageous and tender all in the same blink of an eye. Hmm. So I thought that was really, really neat. And yeah, the whole cast was great, but I do want to highlight the woman who played Brutus. Her name is Shaman McCune, and she was just incredible. I was like hanging off everywhere. (laughs) So yeah, it was was a lot of fun. And I'm kind of sad that I went to see it the last weekend. It was, they do it all through September. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little sad I went to see it the last weekend it was available because I kind of want to go see it again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Not to 
give us a digression, but this reminds me a lot of the 2010 version of The Tempest that Julie Taymor directed. Have you ever seen that? I have, yeah. You have, yes. Helen Mirren? Helen Mirren is Prospero, but they call her Prospera. But that's really the only, and they refer to her as a duchess rather than a duke, but they really kept everything else the same. And that really gives a different relationship and reason why she's so protective of her daughter. Like, it Uh seems less creepy for why she's (laughs) so worried about her daughter on this island. It makes a little bit more sense because as as a mother, as another woman, she's worried in a sympathetic way rather than an ownership way. And that was good. And also a woman, an older woman doing magic is just kind of neat. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is neat. I I, I really enjoy all of the updates to Shakespeare because, you know, in college, I took multiple Shakespeare classes and read them as they were. But seeing adaptations on stage and, and in film are really exciting for me because of the things they change and the things they they try to bring into the 21st century. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. So I know you recently rewatched Fringe. I did. And it was one of my favorite shows when it was airing. And I'm very curious to hear what you thought about it. Yeah, I had watched it when it was on, but I had forgotten a lot because it's been several years since it went off the air and I hadn't rewatched any of it since since it's been off. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Fringe, it was a um, show on Fox from 2008 to 2013. And it was created by J.J. Abrams, who did, well, he's done so much since then, but he, at the time, he was mostly known for Alias and Lost, and since then he's gone on and directed several of the Star Trek movies and things. He's also, he also randomly created, I don't know if you know this, but he created Felicity, the little college drama with Carrie Russell back in the... I think I... I think he did tell me that. Did I tell you that? Yeah. And yeah. I only knew because you told me. Okay. Well, Felicity, <laughs> even though there's nothing supernatural in it, at least on the surface, it does get a little weirdly supernatural in places. And I think he was kind of starting to to stretch his sci-fi and fantasy wings a little bit with that show. Along with J.J. Abrams, it was also co-created by Alex Kurtzman and Robert Orkey. And basically the show is um, a team of FBI agents and a consultant father and son pair who are more like scientist and technology people. They all together research mysterious cases that all deal with fringe science. And it's very, very reminiscent of The X-Files in certain ways, and even um, the much older show Kolchak the Night Stalker, which was a little more supernatural. But certain things on Fringe are so extreme in the way that it postulates science and technology that it ends up seeming supernatural, even though it usually isn't. And you can find this streaming free with limited commercials on IMDb TV, uh, which we love, IMDb TV. There's so many... (laughs) good wild stuff on there that's a little bit older that isn't still on like Hulu and Netflix and and Amazon Prime. So the reason that I really, really love this show and the reason it resonated with me both times that I've been through it, at its core, the thing that it has different from The X-Files is that it's really about the formation of a family. So even though two of the characters are actually related, over the course of the series, they all become very, very tightly knit and function as a family. I really like that that aspect of it and I think the fifth season really brings that home yes absolutely without getting too spoilery yeah and at its core it's also about the concept of healing a family so you're forming a family you're also multiple layers of healing a family and having your family 
sort of resolve itself in a really positive way. And that that's almost more the goal of this team, ultimately, than even solving these mysteries. Also, it is about science. And I read this as I was uh, kind of doing background research on this. John Noble, who played Walter Bishop, who was the quote-unquote mad scientist character on the show, he was himself kind of interested in science and wanted to make sure that the science as outlandish and sort of future thinking as it was, was at least grounded in something plausible, let's say. And you can kind of tell that, that even with certain episodes that it seems like, really, is this possible? It's not all of it is necessarily actually possible, but it's plausible, <laughs> which I think <laughs> is, is an interesting distinction. And myself in my own science fiction writing, I do a lot of social science fiction that's kind of soft science fiction, and I don't always focus on the technology. And I do sometimes when I'm reading science fiction, get a little bleary-eyed over a very techie book. But but watching a very techie show that tries to at least explain it a little bit shorter and a little bit more accessibly, that's not as bad to me. I really appreciated that they took the effort and the time to try to make it seem you know, at least a little bit reasonable. And I, I see where this show could have really inspired people to get into the biological sciences and or physics. The only thing that bugs me about Walter Bishop's character is that he's not really a very specific kind of scientist. He has a PhD, we know that, and we know he's not a medical doctor, but he seems to have a really strong working knowledge of both biology, biomechanics, and physics, which seems a little bit unlikely to me. <laughs> but, you know, it's... TV. It's TV. I know. Well, and also, like, I recently did rewatch the pilot of Quantum Leap, and I remembered that the Sam Beckett, the main scientist guy on that, is supposed to have six PhDs and, a and an MD, and I'm like, he's only, like, 35 or something? Like, that is not, I don't know, that's not how that works, but <laughs> he is portrayed as having gone to college when he was, like, 14, so maybe, maybe, maybe Walter Bishop just happens wow. to have a very interdisciplinary PhD that covered a lot of stuff, but Another thing that I really like about it is the world building, that it kind of, things that happen in season one have repercussions in the last season, and things that you didn't even necessarily think were connected to a larger story arc that might have felt like standalone plots, they end up building on each other. Um, and so you kind of have to pay a lot of attention that it seems like, even if they didn't construct it that way, it seems like it was all very scaffolded and forethought was put into it a lot. So I like that about it. The music is also interesting to me, that Walter is portrayed as being a very big fan of a lot of different kinds of music, and they have little musical Easter eggs peppered throughout the series. Um, there's kind of a running weird little Easter egg series that a bunch of characters who are villains have um, names connected to David Bowie. I did not notice that. Yeah, David Robert Jones is one of their big villains, and that's David Bowie's real name. And Thomas Jerome Newton is another running villain, and that is the name of a character Bowie played in a film. So, and there's there's other musicians and, and musical things that they pay homage to. And there's a moment in the very last season that is set to the song Only You by the British group Yaz. That is one of my favorite scenes in any television show ever. And it's very emotionally impactful and it has no dialogue and it's just really beautiful. And there's there's other moments like that through the series. So not only is the music in the show, Michael Giacchino was the composer for some of the seasons. And then um, oh. Chad Sider and Chris Tilton also did some of the score. They've all done a lot of other TV show scores and they're just brilliant. It's beautiful music. Cool. Yeah. I love I love 
TV show scores. Oh, me too. I have so many Spotify playlists just of TV scores. I will have to add this. Yes, there is a giant, massive fringe one on Spotify that I follow, oh, cool. so it's already together. Also, I think while we're talking about music, I don't know if you... Well, you obviously remember this episode, but the one where they take LSD. Oh, and- and it's like half animated, but then Peter and Olivia are in the 40s, like the 30s or 40s. Do you remember that? Yes, those are two different episodes. Those are. Oh, are they really? Yeah, they are. They um. So yeah, there's a mu- there's a quasi musical episode where they're in the 40s, and it's all based on a story that Walter is telling Olivia's niece. Oh right, right, right. Yeah, and it's all set to music, and and a lot of the a lot of the actors on the show can't actually sing, especially the guy who played um, the FBI head. Oh, Lance Reddick. Lance Reddick is a jazz singer in real life. Um, he played the FBI head Philip Broyles. Yeah, and then there's a separate episode where they all take LSD. In order, there was some reason for it. That it's in order to access the memories of this other character, and half of it is animated to depict how it feels to be in a state of LSD intoxication, and it's very, very beautiful and very well done. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. For, for some reason, I thought those were the same. No, episode. it's I, but it's understandable. There are some kind of trippy episodes, and there is a lot of strange drug imagery and metaphors in the show because Walter is he is a recreational drug user and it's kind of mostly played for laughs but he does have some mental health issues that I think they also deal with kind of interestingly there's just a lot of kind of heavy themes but they also the show has a good sense of humor at its core as well and two of the actresses on there Anna Torv plays Olivia and she's brilliant. This was one of her first major American acting roles. And she's gone on to later appear on Netflix's Mindhunter as the female psychologist character. And she's brilliant on that. And she brings a really interesting gravitas to a lot of roles that she's in. Olivia lets her be a little bit more lighthearted than she gets to be on Mindhunter, obviously, since that show is even darker. But she's great. So if you like her on Mindhunter, then you would really enjoy her on Fringe. And then the other actress that I really like on Fringe is Jessica Nicole. And one of the things that I've been enjoying her on recently is a podcast called Alice Isn't Dead. And it's done by the same people who do Welcome to Night Vale. And so it's a very creepy sort of Twin Peaks-esque podcast. That's It's a fiction podcast, but she basically narrates the whole thing. So even though it's a fictional story, you get it all through primarily her voice telling the story and she's got a very soothing sweet voice (laughs) and so um i just really enjoy that show and and she's really great on it there's i think two seasons and then there's a novel version and i think there's an audiobook of the novel version but if you like fiction podcasts i really really recommend alice isn't dead but i also recommend fringe so if you like things like the x-files if you like your science fiction a little bit more techie and also grounded in contemporary society so even though this this was filmed a couple years ago it still feels pretty contemporary it aged pretty well the early seasons their cell phones are very small and stuff and there are episodes that take place in the future and things so some of that tech gets pretty interesting and there is a lot of element of strange parallel dimensions time travel and there's a lot that also has kind of a predicting certain political things going on the only the last thing i'll mention is that re-watching this I felt like, oh, how much of this inspired my my own science fiction novel? Because I sort of conceived of this this scientific team working together with one physicist who was a little bit more kooky and then one guy who's a little more reasonable. And I worry that I kind of subconsciously based that on the relationship between Walter and his son, Peter. But it's, you know, I think I think I just was lightly inspired by that. So 
that's always good to to realize. Yeah. Because I get I get like that too. I'm like, wait, did I actually uh, steal all of, <laughs> all of this just subconsciously? Because I loved it five years ago. Right. But yeah, it's a great show, and I'm I'm really glad you had a good time rewatching it. I would love to rewatch it, but it is a hundred episodes. It's a hundred episodes. It's a bit of a commitment. It took me all of this past summer to pretty much get through it. But every summer, I like to I like to watch something that either is totally new to me that's about that long, or or rewatch something that I've enjoyed before. A couple of years ago, I watched all of Gilmore Girls, which I had never seen, and that was a nice little summer watch. So if you're needing some kind of thing that will take you about three months if you watch it, maybe one episode a day or so, then there you go. Fringe is a good choice. There you go. Cool. So let's maybe move on to a different show that we both are recently enjoying or i don't know enjoying is maybe the right enjoying word. is not the right word <laughs> but we we both really like it and that is netflix's mini series unbelievable okay so maybe let's set up the premise do you want to set up the premise for us here sure so the first episode starts with a girl named marie oh you know what we should give a little content warning we should um, because the show is about sexual assault so if you don't feel comfortable listening to it you can just turn us off and catch us next time we're cool with that. So we find we open up to find Marie in the aftermath of a sexual assault. And she's an 18-year-old. Um, she's been in foster care, but she's out of it. She's kind of living in a in like a group apartment. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that right? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's like almost a, a transitional group home, but it's separate apartments that they all live yeah. in. Yeah. So she calls one, her foster mom, her one of her foster moms, and they report it to the police. And you find out that there are sort of some inconsistencies in her story. Um, she doesn't remember everything really well. And over the course of the first episode, the police start to not believe her. And they think she's making it up for attention. So they kind of they kind of actually bully her into recanting. Mm-hmm. And it's an eight-episode series. And the rest of the series deals with the aftermath of that. She eventually gets charged for making a false report so she has to go through that process and then that's in 2008 it switches back and forth between these two storylines in 2011 tony collette and merritt weaver play detectives who are investigating uh, a serial rapist and it's 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 very heavy it's heavy stuff i almost didn't watch past the first episode actually I think I tweeted something like, how did anyone, how did any woman make it through the first episode without wanting to set things on fire? (laughs) Because, yeah, it's just, I, I fortunately have never been in a situation like this, but it's so representative of other situations that women find themselves in where we just kind of get pressured into saying, no, this is not how it was, or no, you're lying. And um, that really hit home for me, but also just the fact that this happened in real life and it was awful. Yeah, this is based on a true story. So yeah, to to see the initial victim that we that we see in the first episode get sort of railroaded into her false recanting. We also follow several other victims that the police detectives um, interview and it's interesting to see how every every person that this situation touched deals with it slightly differently and and that there's no one right or wrong way to respond to such a stressful, horrible thing, and how the the police resources, how that all works. The thing that struck me is that it reminded me a lot of Law & Order SVU, obviously, except that it's paced much more realistically. 
it comes off a lot less sensationalistic, obviously, and it's it's shot in a way that feels much more contemporary, even though Law and Order is still on. I just watched the season premiere of Law and Order, which is on its 21st season, and even though it was ba- it was a case based on real life situations, it just felt so much more outlandish and and unreal than unbelievable, which felt very real. It also reminds me of Mindhunter, not to keep talking about that, mm-hmm. in its tone and pace and the way that it both shows really get to some psychological underpinnings of, of violent criminality. And Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver are amazing in this. Amazing. I want both of them to get Emmys. I don't know if they can because they're probably they'd probably be up in the same category against each other. <laughs> but they're both great and I love that they're both they're very different in how they police and the way their relationship develops in terms of how their working relationship begins and how it kind of winds up and that felt very realistic. I like that it didn't it didn't make them best friends and it didn't make them adversaries. And it showed nuances of how an actual working collaboration between women can and maybe should even go. They're not, they don't have a ton in common other than wanting to stop this guy. And at times they do kind of butt heads. Yeah. But they also seem to have an abiding respect for each other's process. And yeah. And so that just felt really, really real. They have slightly different family structures, but they both have husbands who are also is I'm I'm a little confused about whether their husbands are both cops, but I think they are. No. No. Uh, okay. So Tony Collette's her character's name is Grace, and her husband is an ADA. Oh, okay. Okay, I missed that. Yeah, he's an attorney of some kind. But yeah, still involved in the. Yeah, and Merritt Weaver's husband was a cop, and I think he may be not working as a cop anymore. It's unclear. No, I think he is. Is he still a cop? Okay, I wasn't. Yeah. But Tony Collette's husband and her don't have any kids, but Merritt Weaver has several children and they just have slightly different um, paths in life and things that matter to them and stuff. But at the core, they do have support systems and they do have like a certain way they try to protect themselves based on how hard it is to do this work of dealing with sexual assault victims. And yeah, and they just come off very empathetic. Their approach to interviewing a victim is very different from how Marie is interviewed by different police officers. And just the contrast in their approach to the job is really interesting. Right. I really enjoyed that it focused on their working relationship. And you can obviously see a lot of respect grows out of that relationship, but they, they are very different people. And there was this one scene that I really liked where they kind of merge offices and Karen's like getting ready to, or Karen's just at her computer and it's really late at night and Grace is leaving and she's, Grace says something like, you can't, you can't really do this to yourself. You can't stay here all night and, and take this on because it'll, it'll break you. And, and Karen's like, no, I, I am not leaving basically. I think they play, don't they play gin rummy or something for yes, a little bit? they do. And then Grace leaves and she lets Karen stay there. And I, I just thought that was a really nice way of illustrating their relationship. Like, yeah, they have very different approaches, but they let each other do their thing. Yeah. And I thought that was great. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really, that was a powerful scene. There's some other dialogue that's a little spoilery in that scene that, that really even more underscores that moment. I watched that episode last night, so it's very, okay. very fresh on my mind. But, um, but yeah, and they're shown as being really, really good at their job, but also not super perfectly functional. I think they both drink a little too much and they, they 
show that. But they also, you know, they are very, very compassionate and clearly it, it gets to them. So it was, it's a really, really, I think that I recommend it. It's very tough, some of it, but very tough. If you, I did cry through most of the first episode, but I, once they start to focus on the, on the detectives a little bit more, it's not quite as hard on the heart, but it is. Right. And the detectives don't show up till episode two. Right. Right. But also note that KW cried through the first episode and I wanted to set things on fire. Kind of tells you something. Choose your fighter. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I recommend it. I also recommend maybe pacing it out a little bit if, if these kinds of things bother you or, or if it gets too tough. I did watch, there was one day I watched two episodes back to back and that was a little much, but it's very, very well done. And yeah, I hope that at least one of them can get an Emmy. And if not the woman who plays Marie, it's also really, really great and shows a kind of understated, contained rage that I think, especially toward the end of the series, you see kind of finally come out a little bit more. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do just want to note that there's a book and it was originally broken in a story in ProPublica, I believe. And the, the book is called A False Report. And you can read the article online if you'd like, but it's by T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong. Great. Next time we're going to talk about some more great pop culture stuff, but one thing that we are going to cover is there's a new season of The Masked Singer. We're so excited! Real silly, but it's pretty fun. We both love it. We love it. And we just realized that it just started, so we're going to catch up and we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, we're going to have theories about who each of the singers are. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Stay tuned. Yes. I'm always really wrong. KW's pretty spot on. (laughs) I got some right last time, but I I did get into some hardcore, like, Twitter theorizing. I would post things on Facebook and people would chime in with their theories, and I think that influenced my ability to theorize. I did get some right from last season, so... I did not get the the final person I was still a little torn on, but I think I got a lot of the other ones correct, so. I got zero correct. Oh, wow. Just FYI. Okay, so this will be great. Um, we'll probably talk about some more books and music, and we're going to think about another pilot rewatch. We are going to eventually have some interviews. We've got some interviewee ideas in the pipeline, and that'll that'll keep going. So, yeah. Yeah, so we will see you next time. Um, our theme music is by Joseph McDade. And if you want to find me on Twitter, you can at Carrie Gessner. And I'm at KW Taylor Writer. And if you want to email us, you can do that at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. Mm-hmm.